want to start with two passages of Scripture. One of them has to do with the account itself of the resurrection of Jesus. Mark's account is very simple. It's, very, it, it's, it's brief, but it, it's, it tells us the story. And then I want to sit with also some of the words from the Apostle Paul, who was a man whose life was radically altered, who went from becoming a fierce opponent of Jesus Christ to probably the most um, impactful representative of Jesus this world has ever seen. And so let's begin by reading Mark 16. It says that when the Sabbath was passed, and I don't want to assume that everybody is familiar with the uh, Bible's account of the resurrection of Jesus, but it says when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. That was a, a very significant thing that was going on here. We're told the Sabbath day in their culture was Saturday. And uh, it, it started at Friday sundown and went through this, the following 24-hour period. And so the following day would have been Sunday. That's why we celebrate Easter on Sunday. And you got to remember is that when Jesus was, was crucified, how devastating that really was, how intensely devastating it was for them to... And, and the Bible doesn't really... Uh, overplay this in that first description there. It just says when the Sabbath was passed. I mean, it's like, it's like the next, it's like someone's saying the next day, right? But that day was unlike any other day. I mean, that was a day that had absolutely crushed the hopes and dreams of the followers of Jesus. Anybody who was even remotely, um, you know, connected to Jesus would have been completely devastated by the turn of events. Who could have foreseen it? so rapidly changing, and to watch him, this beautiful one, who never hurt anyone, who spoke words of life, and literally changed people's lives, to watch him so, um, not just beaten, but not just killed, but literally tortured to death. For a follower of the Lord, for anyone with any degree of sensitivity and love, it was absolutely devastating. And the dream was so completely over, and, and you can imagine what some people were thinking. Well, whatever else he was, he was good to me. And they felt compelled that they wanted to honor him in some way. The reason it says the women were coming there to anoint his body is because Jesus had not actually been properly uh, prepared for his burial. We know that in order to, because at, at the beginning of Sabbath, you, according to their custom, you couldn't do work. And so it was actually imperative that after Jesus had died that anybody who wanted to bury him, otherwise his body was just going to be tossed over in a corner somewhere, Eaten, as some were, just thrown into a pit. But there were two admirers of Jesus, one of whom's name was Nicodemus. He's an important man because he was a Pharisee. We read about his conversation with Jesus in the great third chapter of John, in which he, that's the chapter in where, that's the conversation where Jesus utters that great verse, for God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It was in that conversation with Nicodemus, but Nicodemus had been a secret admirer. He had never wanted to expose himself as a follower of Christ. He, he was afraid of what it might cost him, and so he followed Jesus, but in the distance, in the shadows. And there was another man Nick, uh, named Joseph of Arimathea who had a, had a tomb that he had purchased. He was a wealthy man. These two, Joseph and Nicodemus, made a decision to do for Jesus in his death what they were never really willing to do when he was alive. They decided at the very least they needed to honor him with a proper burial. And so they had hastily, not carelessly, but hastily taken him down, wrapped him as best as they could because they had to get it done by sundown and put him into a tomb, had, the, had a seal rolled over it, and it was done. 
the women were making their way on that Sunday morning at the very outset of the day before this. It, look at how the Bible describes it. It says very early, look at verse 2. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. I've always loved that. I know the Bible didn't intentionally put it this way, but do you see the play on words? I've always loved the idea that they had come when the sun had risen, but the sun had risen. And there's something about it. There's something about it. They didn't know that. They were coming to honor what they thought was a really, really good dead man. And when they got there in that opening of the day, it says that they, it dawned on them that as they made their way that they were actually going to have a problem. They had forgotten to take into account. They had all the spices, all the burial. They were going to give him a proper burial. They were going to express their love for him in some way. He was not just anybody. No matter what had happened, he was going to be honored. But when they got there, they, it, somewhere along the way, they said, wait a second, who's going to help us roll away the stone? Because we know that a st the tomb was basically carved out of the rock. And essentially, a large, it had a groove typically where a large stone would be rolled as a covering. And it sort of was an empty, it, had a, it was hollowed out rock with another large stone rolled in front of it. And then it dawns on them, well, who's going to, how are we going to move the stone? How are we even going to get to the, to the dead body of Jesus to even give the proper burial, the wrapping, the spices, the anointing, as it's called? And it's, in verse 3, it says, they said among themselves, look at that, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. The, the stone was rolled away. Do you know why it was rolled away? Not, not to let Jesus out, but to show them that he wasn't there anymore. There's a big difference. Many times in life, we, we come looking for a stone, and we're afraid. How am I going to roll this thing away? And to our surprise, God's already showed up, and it has been rolled away. It's amazing when that happens. And look what it says occurs next. It says, in entering the tomb, they saw a young man, we would say an angel, clothed in long white robes, sitting on the right side, and they were afraid. They were alarmed. And then he said to them, do not be afraid. Do not be alarmed. And look at the designation that is used there. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See, see the place where they laid him. Now, what's interesting is when, when that it, when they are told that Jesus isn't there, look at the designation. It, look at the way, what he's referred, how his name is referred to. Jesus, it's not, a, it's not a coincidence. Jesus of Nazareth. Do you realize that, that that designation, that name that had been attached to Jesus, was not just because where he grew up. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth was in the Galilee. It was kind of like in the backwaters. It was an unsophisticated place. In fact, Nazareth had a reputation because it was a Roman outpost on, a, on an important trade route from the east, it had a reputation for vice and corruption, which is one of the reasons why later on, when Jesus' two, two prospective disciples, one's name is Nathaniel, one's name is Philip, will be having this conversation in which, in which one of them says, hey, we found the one who's Messiah. And then he says, well, he's Jesus of Nazareth. And then he's from Nazareth. And then the other one says, yeah, but can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Because it had a reputation. And in fact, here's what I'm saying is, when Jesus' opponents and enemies wanted to insult him in a backhanded way, they would say, he's Jesus of Nazareth. Because it was designed to undermine 
and sort of emphasize that he really wasn't much at all. He comes from this backwater, corrupt place. You're going to follow him, Jesus of Nazareth, and just like the way that the cross was redeemed. Because think about it. I've, I've always, the cross is, was an instrument of death and torture. Now we look at it, we go, wow, the cross. It speaks of life and the love of God that is relentless. But the cross was not always that symbol. God redeemed it. That means he changed it. He turned it back. He bought it back. He brought new meaning into it, which is what he does to our lives if we allow him in. And in the same way, you know, Jesus didn't mind the designation of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, he took it. And a lot of times, you almost got the impression that when his enemies said and his critics said, yeah, you're Jesus of Nazareth, that he would say, that's true. I'm a friend of sinners. I didn't come for the good people who don't see any of their need because your hearts are blocked. In fact, the impression was that the ones that he had the hardest time dealing with were the people who thought they were too good for him. But he said, you know why he says the Beatitudes? Blessed are you broken. Blessed are you poor. Because he's saying this, your hearts are open. How can that be a blessing? Because you have, you have nothing to prop you up, to blind you to your need. And happy are you because the kingdom is yours. How good is that? The, the, the word is, but he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Yes, but he's risen. That's our message. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, I, I didn't put this in your handout, but we'll put it up on the, on the screen. Look at the next verse. Because there's something else that is said here, and I think it's great. Now, what, this is what you're supposed to do. Go. Go and tell his disciples. And then notice the special, special designation. And, don't, and tell the disciples and Peter. Tell it. Tell, make sure you tell Peter. Why? Because at that time, Peter was an absolutely crushed man, a shell of a man. He had made he had made big statements about loyalty. And when it had come down to it, he was not prepared for the level of spiritual, and we're going to say, I'm going to say warfare, but it, 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 he was not ready. He, at a physical level, he felt ready, but he didn't understand spiritual dynamic. And when that wave hits him, he denies the Lord. And honestly, he probably, the Bible says that that big man, that hard man, that, that tough man, broke down weeping bitter tears. And in fact, he probably would have gone the same direction that his friend went. And take it, some people say he was on his way to taking his life when another of the disciples, young John, finds him and comes to him and, and, is, and just says, I, I need to be with you now. Come, don't be alone. Do you understand the principle? There are some times when we may feel the most like being alone when it's the time that we need to be alone the least. We need, we need to be with others through that deep wound. But there's everything in us tends to want to do what Peter did, pull away. We pull away. But God's saying, don't do that. Move in. Move into the place of safety. For some of us, that's a very important truth in our life with God. I love that because when I see, his, when he's, when I see him giving, saying, saying and, and tell Peter, there's like special attention is being given to Peter. And I want us to remember this. Never forget, so it tells me, that God doesn't give up on us. Don't ever, remember that. 
He meets us at our lowest places. He meets us at our broken places. And if I can take it one step further, he meets us in our failing, shameful places. Maybe he meets us there the most. He wants us to know, I, I love you. I haven't given up on you. There's, a, there's something beautiful about that. And Peter. He, Peter denied him, but Jesus didn't give up on him. That's a beautiful... That's, and notice what else here. What else does he say in that verse? He, he says, I want you to go, go and tell his disciples, which, again, that's a reminder that this message that we share, this, this message of Jesus, is not to be a sedentary message. It's not designed to be a message that we just kind of keep to ourselves. Do you see that? It's designed to be something that we give away. He didn't say, for example, you know, stop, stop, and, and keep this to yourself. He said, go and tell. Ours is a, is a message that's designed to be, sh- be shared. Why? Because it's good news. And good news is to be shared. And, what, and at its center, you know what the center of this message is? The center of this message is a living faith and a living Savior. <laughs> a living faith and a living Savior. Again, if we take away the resurrection, listen to me. If we take away the resurrection, the cross means nothing. It means nothing. The, the cross loses all of its value and becomes nothing more than a sad symbol of a life that was tragic. It, without the resurrection, the cross is meaningless. It's just an ending. Without that, you know why? Death is the final word, not life. That's a very critical thing. And I was thinking about life, and I was thinking about the meaning of what Jesus did here and what the impact of it is. I was thinking about how life really does fly by fast. I mean, it flies by. Maybe I've been thinking about it more than usual because in a month, I'll be turning 50. That'll do it, you know. <laughs> and my wife, who's two two months older than me. <laughs> Every decade, I have a really special two months with her. Because I say, you know, I'm still in my 30s. You are your 40, and I'm now in my 40s. So, but I only, it only lasts about two months. So, But I've been thinking about it. And uh, when you hit this marker, any illusion of youthfulness is really gone. You're, you, whatever they say, all oh, the new this, the new that, yeah. But, okay, you know, you go through, in life, you go through transitions. And uh, even when you're young, you do. You co- a lot of times coming out of school and moving into a career is a real transition point where people struggle to find themselves. You can have transitions when, when we're moving through life that we come to these moments where all of a sudden, we're asking different types of questions, and our thoughts are driving us inward. And maybe we're more open to listening for God's voice than we've ever been. It's, it's an okay place to be, but it's not always fun. And I've been thinking a lot about the brevity of life and about the prom- promise of resurrection and about the arch of life, because we really don't know our end days. I know, you, I know when we're young, we never think about that too much because we just assume we have certain things that we'll always have. But you know what? That's not true. 
and none of us, we don't know the span of our days on this side of eternity. We really don't. And, and we, we, what we have, though, no matter how it's sliced, life is, is, is brief compared to forever. And as I was reflecting on this, I, I was thinking about timetables. As I was reading this article about timetables, and one in this article it said that an infant, and we're talking about an infant and how they relate to time, and they said an infant lacks any awareness whatsoever of the flow of time. And, and, and the child is, is, and this is what was said, the child is essentially an ever-succeeding series of present moments. Which is, you know, I think one of the, the two things there, one of the reasons Jesus, I thought about what Jesus said, he said, you know, if you really want to experience God, you have to be like a child. He was saying, what is a child open to? Wonder. Faith comes easy. There's not the cynicism and the skepticism and the resistance and the, because they haven't been hurt. At the same, it, we, there's also the ability sometimes to, in this case, to not see time. And young children often focus on the ongoing action, which is one of the reasons they often become easily impatient and sometimes une, un, unable to deal with delay because time is different, right? Because they don't comprehend time the same way. And I wonder a little bit if that's what kind of like heaven's going to be like, what eternity is like, living in the present, ever succeeding series of present moments. You know, as we grow up, our understanding of, um, of time develops and, and it starts to, def- I don't know, somewhere along the way, I was given a watch. I mean, some people might say, well, what is a watch, you know? <laughs> watch is one of these things that, that you wear, it tells the time, and nowadays it's been replaced by a phone, and, but a watch is more of an, it, it was something that I, I realized, I remember somewhere along the way, I started marking the time of my life. And I realized, hey, you'd be back at a certain time, you know? And then, but here's the deal. As you get older, you start to realize, I mean, just as you grow up, we grow up. We start to realize, wow, we start marking time. And we realize that, the, that we don't have all the time in the world. We just have a sliver of it. And I think that's why the Bible is so clear. And I think this is important for Easter time as well to really then think about the quality of the way that we are living our life. Not the things that we're acquiring, but what we are living. How is our relationship with God? How are we doing with loving the people he's given us to love well? Are we growing? Are we serving? Are we getting past things? Easter is a wonderful, wonderful time to reflect, to think about life. Listen to me. Life, death, and life. I say it again. Life and death and life. Because Christ's resurrection alters everything. It does. It, it creates a gash in death's firewall. The impenetrable tomb is broken from the inside out. And indeed, the stone is rolled away, the sunlight. If I imagine that moment, when the stone is rolled away, the sunlight shines into the darkness. It pours in because the sun is rising. It's so much there. I love the way the Bible describes it. Now, here's the deal. If he has risen, and we are celebrating this reality, if he has risen, and if, he, if, if that is the truth, then it, it must alter. It's going to alter the way we think about life. 
and everything. And so this is what Paul's getting at. And I want us to look at this as we, as we move to the center here. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this. And again, here is a man whose life has been radically changed by Jesus. He goes from a, a, a deep enemy of Jesus, a cynic, to someone who becomes an advocate. He says this, look at this. Why, and why do you think I keep risking my neck in this dangerous work? I look death in the face practically every day that I live. Do you think I'd do this if I wasn't convinced of your resurrection and mine as guaranteed by the resurrected Messiah, Jesus? Do you think I was trying to act heroic when I fought the wild beasts at Ephesus? That was his allusion to some opponents that were fiercely going after him. Hoping it wouldn't be the end of me? Not on your life. Look at this. It's resurrection, resurrection, always resurrection. That undergirds what I do and say and the way I live. Listen, listen. If there's no resurrection, if Jesus didn't rise, then we just eat, we drink, and the next day we die. And that's all there is to it. But don't fool yourself. Don't let yourself be poisoned by this, this anti-resurrection loose talk. No bad company ruins good manners. And what is, he, what is there for us? I mean, the message is, is kind of an interesting paraphrase, but it really does capture Paul's emotions. Can I put this out there? Because he lives, and we'll just kind of list it, look at it this way, and I want you to see, see how we're pulling these principles out from what we just read. Because he lives, we are, we are to live with restraint and not recklessly. That's one of the things Paul's getting at. Because, listen, if he's not alive, then what he's saying is, then, then no way is the right way, and every way is as good as another, and who's to tell anyone what right and wrong is? But he's basically saying, if, if there is no truth, if there is no, no reason to understand and, and lens to look at life through, then, listen, we can be as reckless and as indulgent and, uh, as we want to be, because, honestly, he's saying, nothing really matters anyway. So why not grab for whatever you want? Whatever you want. You want to pull out, pull out. You want to grab us for everything? Grab it all. Care about yourself. Doesn't matter. Any, nothing matters. It's a, quite a statement. But if he is alive, then what Paul says, and I believe he is, because I've seen him and experienced him, then it means I have to pay attention to how I'm living my life. It, all of a sudden, it changes the equation. It means that I've got to start listening for what Jesus had to say about what he, what he taught us about what living looks like and about the challenge of, of, of loving others and about what it means to live unselfishly and, and, and to righteously, which is a way of saying to live, live what is a, a life that is right and pleasing to God. And it, and it also means that I then need to be open to being challenged by God about the way in which I'm living my life. So that I, if, if, I'm engage, if I'm being reckless with it, I need to remember this is a gift from God, an entrustment. And I've been given by him to, to use it well. And it matters how I live and the choices I make. It means more than just even now. It has an eternal, some of these things have long eternal ramifications. It's a big deal. That's what Paul's getting at. But he's also saying something else. Look at that. Because he lives, secondly, we are to live with brave faith. Do you see it? And not just cautious fear. Paul says, I faced things I didn't run away or quit. I, was, I even was willing to suffer because I, I know. Why? The reason I was willing to stand up to these things that the other part of me would have run away from normally is because I have a conviction that there is more than this, just this life. Because he is alive, it means it changes everything. It, and in some ways he's saying, I, we don't need to be afraid of things. Some of us get afraid of things. So we get afraid of, of something that, that, that we want to run away from it. And we want to 
Maybe some, so maybe we're afraid of losing a person, getting a diagnosis, losing our job. We start, fear begins to grip our hearts. But God, God calls us to not allow that fear to be what defines us because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a soundness of mind. And a lot of times he's calling us to, to, to have brave faith and not just be defined by our fears and and. It's so easy to do that. Maybe we fear we don't have what it takes, so we just don't even try. Oh, we've been disappointed by people. We've been hurt, so I don't want to be hurt again, so I'm not going to try. That's fear. But when we really get the sense of that everything is in his hands, that I don't have to live my life bound in, I don't have to be afraid of things. God calls me to trust him because ultimately I've put my life in the hands of one who I will walk with when this life is done. So I'm going to live life not afraid. I'm going to live it as much as I can. And if you'll help me as, with as much brave faith as I can. And I'm going to bring that into my life. And I'll begin to think about life differently than I have in the past. And Paul goes, and then I'll take it one step further. Because not only that, I think he's indicating something else. Remember when he says evil company you know, corrupts good manners. What he's, what he's saying there is I want you to think about your relationships. And then three, exercise relational wisdom. In light of the fact that he is alive, think about how we're living. And in Paul's case, what is he saying? Weigh out the company you keep, not because we're better or too good, but because we, hang, we have, we, we, how do we say it? We are affected by the people we hang with. You say, well, I'm just saying, look, we all, there's, do you know how important it is to have relationships? Now, I feel like, like some of the most important things we can ever do is to have a couple of key relationships in our life that provoke us to want to do better, to grow closer to God, people who we can trust. That's why we talk about the value of being in a small group because out of that context often call, comes rich friendships. Do you realize that if you've got a couple of true friends who, who honestly can love and, and pray with you and we can pray for each other, do you know, how, do you know what a gift that is? Your money can't buy that. The same is also true that there are sometimes relationships that are honestly, if we're really honest, they're toxic for us. And we can't even really help others because we're so vulnerable in these relationships that we actually can very easily fall back into patterns of life that we don't even want to, we don't want to do that anymore. When we drop into certain relationships, certain things kick in, all of a sudden we're acting in ways that are so contrary to what our heart really wants to do and what we feel now God's doing in our lives. The Bible talks about the value of thinking through the, relational, the relationships that we have and really asking him to, to help us, to be honest with our, our ability. A lot of relationships, you know, if, I'm not talking about hiding out or not engaging people because uh, we're, we're supposed to do that. But what I'm saying is that we have to be honest about the relationships in our lives and the effects that they're having. And, and Paul's making the case that your life matters. And if life matters because there is meaning to it, then the people that you build that life with are going to affect the type of person you become. So don't just, don't just kind of do that casually, but be very honest, because all of us have different areas that need to be strengthened, and, some of, and we also have areas where we're weak. And knowing our weakness, knowing when certain things happen, we will fall into patterns that will actually damage and undermine the things that we, we don't need. Like I say, that means so much, and yet sometimes I find that sometimes it's, so, it's just, it's important for us to, to, to ask God to fill us with wisdom for how we construct our relational life so that we're being honest about our own strengths and weaknesses. 
Then, the last thing we'll close with, look at this here. 1 Corinthians 15, look how it's described, because so much of this chapter is about resurrection. Paul's talking about it, and we'll just close with this. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, death will, that's not going to be the end of it. But we're all going to be changed. Look what he's saying. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will ra be raised, incorruptible. We'll be changed. So our body is going to be changed. This corruptible must put on incorruption, this moral immortality. And so when this, this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Hell, where, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. In other words, the law shows us where we miss God's, God's mark. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, his victory. Therefore, in light of the fact that death does not hold him, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. How good is that? You know, the, the message puts it this way. It says, look at that, look at it. It says, with all this going for you, my dear friends, Stand your ground. Don't hold back. Throw yourself into the work of the master. <laughs> Confident that nothing you do for him is a waste of time or effort. Steadfast. Stay with your faith. Immovable. Don't be easily moved off course. Always abounding. A growing, fruitful life. That's not a perfect life. That's not a life that doesn't have issues. We all will have that. What it is saying is, and I'm going to recontend for that here, that the, that the Lord has called us to be a growing person. Not a perfect person, but a growing person. I often think about what that means. You, you know, and, and oftentimes it's adversity in life that allows the roots to grow deep. Sometimes a tree, you look at a tree, when it's, it, the, the, the root system below is as big as the tree on the top. And the deeper the roots in our life, the more we are able to withstand things that come our way, the more strength we have. And then what is that a picture of? God wanting us to bear fruit. God wants us to do it. Even as the psalm says, even in our old age, as the years go by, Lord, let me be a fruitful person. Let me to work through things. Let me to get past things. Some of us, we got stuff. We were hurt. You know, I, came, I came from a, a home that broke apart. I, you know, we get hurt in life. People disappoint us. Sometimes bad things happen. We, all, we come to Jesus. You know what? Listen, I was looking someone in the eye after the, after the first service here, and he said, you know what? I'm, I'm finally getting it. I'm making a new start. And what I said is, the resurrection life is with you. He's about life. And he brings life out of the dead places. Do you see it? Out of dead places, he brings life. Are there places that he wants to bring life into our lives? That reminds me then of this, and then we'll just finish with this, that because he lives, we are to live with passionate, tenacious commitment, that we are, that God wants our faith to be strong, not like, not, again, deeply rooted, um, capable of enduring things, get, growing, learning, um, getting better, not having to retaliate. We talked about this. Hurt for hurt. You hurt me. I hurt you back. Learning how to become, listen, a more whole person in him who sends out blessing. 
Last thing I'll say is because he lives, and don't ever forget this. This is what the life of Jesus. This is the, what it's all. The, because he lives, we are to live, as, as Paul says, with hopefulness always. That there is to be a resilience as a way of life. That nothing need defeat us. Not only are we given a presence. The Lord says, I will come to you. I will be with you. In fact, he told the disciples who were clearly shaken. He says, look, I'm going away. In fact, they're going to kill me. I'm going to be, I'm telling you this. I want you to know it. They couldn't hear him. But he says, when it happens, you'll remember. But I, he says, but if I go away, I will also come to you. I will send my spirit. God wants his presence to, to be in our lives. But it's not just a presence. It's also a promise that this is not the end. That because he lives we live, and, what, and that means that whatever crushing disappointments are sent our way, whatever suffering we may at times have to endure, when the time, even when the time comes, and for some of us this means more than others, but even when that time comes to walk through a door that none of us wants to walk through, the door called death, when that time comes, he is with us. And we do not need to be afraid. That's what he's saying. We do not need to be afraid because there is a hope settled and sure, an anchor true. Why are you weeping? He is not dead. He is alive. I am, Jesus said, the resurrection and the life. I want to fill your life with my life. Let's pray. Lord, we... Uh, on this Easter, we, we thank you for a life that flows way past death. And I'm going to say two things, Lord, and I want to ask you, please, not only that we would embrace the promise of life and all that that means by opening up our heart to you, I pray, I pray that we would live as people who have an optimism that is absolutely resilient because we know ultimately that everything is in your hands. If we have a destination and we know where we're going, then we can get past things, even things we're afraid of. It's okay. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Many waters cannot quench your love, God. Death could not quench it. Your love pursues us relentlessly. And I pray also, Lord, that there would be dimensions of your life that begin to work themselves out in our lives, however long we have in this world. I pray that, that the reality of who you are would affect how we approach our life, how we love the people you've given us to love, how we get past the hurts of life, which are real, how we choose to face things that we can't control. We trust you. We love you. You are our redeemer, the one who sets us free. Thank you, risen Savior. Be alive in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.